Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. Maybe the miners. Sure, they're like three years old. Miners, not miners. If you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. <laughs> I don't want to kill you. What would I do without you? Every time someone says, I do not believe in fairies, somewhere there's a fairy that falls down dead. We women who aren't afraid to fight to stand up for our dignity. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact. There are no colored bathrooms in this building and a simple string of pearls. Well, I don't own pearls. Lord knows you don't pay colors enough to afford pearls. There's one thing the history of evolution has taught us. It's that life will not be contained. Life finds a way. Words are, in my not-so-humble opinion, our most inexhaustible source of magic. Hello and welcome, Penbiters. I'm Jen, and sitting on the other side of the chateau is Mademoiselle Charlotte. Hello, Charlotte. Oh, bonjour, Mademoiselle Jen. <laughs> I don't know how to say anything else in French. V. Gates, that's German for how are you? Mm, muy bien. That's great. <laughs> So today we're going to be talking about a book that I think maybe like a few thousand people have read, if that, since its publication in the 80s, because it's a teeny tiny little book, not well known at all. I found it at a used bookstore, and I feel like I kind of won the little gay lottery that day, because it wasn't a book I ever expected to find. So go support your local used bookstores, because... It's so much different than like going online to buy books. There's just something about going into a used bookstore and stumbling upon something that is like made for you that is really it's a beautiful experience. So before we get into it, I would like to mention two things just off the bat. First, that this book features two women in a romantic relationship. So if that's not something that you want to hear about, then you should expand your mind and probably leave. No judgment, but lots of judgment. <laughs> And the second thing is that this story is very much like in the vein of fun, dark spookiness of gothic literature. So if you aren't familiar, things that like would fit under that is like Dracula, Frankenstein. Gothic romance too, Jane Eyre, Withering Heights. Frankenstein and Dracula are more like the monster horror type, whereas Jane Eyre and Withering Heights are more like the romantic. I mean, it's all gothic, <laughs> but this particular book has more of the romance in it. Right. Yeah, I think generally speaking, just like big picture motifs, that's the sort of world we'll be looking at. If you ha I've never read Wuthering Heights. I've just barely seen Jane Eyre. So I'm very glad that we can talk about those a little bit today as well. There are themes that may be on the darker side, although this book you said doesn't quite go to those degrees. Like there isn't reanimating dead parts of a person into one person. Like that's not in this, but... What? I'm gone. <laughs> The only thing that will give you nightmares about this is that it is not a movie. <laughs> and we all have to live with that truth. And I hope you're ready to carry that burden. Horrific. <laughs> <laughs> so the name of the book is The Marquise and the Novice. And it was written by Victoria Ramstetter. It was published January 1st of 1981 by Nyad Press. Which is really interesting. Nyad Press has a lot of amazing books that I have read by happenstance. Like, again, books that I haven't looked for but have found in used bookstores for the most part. And they closed many, uh, two decades ago or something. But Bella Books is a pretty popular lesbian. I don't know if they have other. They might have male. They might have gay books as well. But it's a pretty big publication. 
And they absorbed Naiad Press. So they sell a lot of the Naiad Press books. So if you're interested in any of those, definitely go to bellabooks.com. And I am not a paid spokesperson. <laughs> Aw. They did not hire me to say that, but they have some good stuff. This book that we're going to be talking about is written by somebody who knows how to write, who understands tropes and themes and a genre. And it's not that people now don't understand those things, but they have been so heavily influenced by film and television. They're a little bit weaker in what they're doing. So like urban fantasy, paranormal romance, and vampire erotica, those three things are very oversaturated markets because they're very popular. I would never recommend one of those to somebody who is not interested in that, who is a writer or a reader. I brought up this book because I wish there were like a hundred more like it. She takes the classic literature themes and she uses them. We'll talk about how much she uses them, but these other books don't follow that. They're more of your twilight, you know, young adult people. They just don't hold as much oomph in my opinion, as some of the older books. So my point being that if you go to Bella Books, you can look at a lot of books that are older, that are from the 60s to the 90s, which do tend to have a higher quality to them. There are fantastic books out there that are in those subcategories that are recent, but you have to like, uh, you just, you have to like wade through so many bad versions first that it can be tiring. Sometimes it's better to go back and then follow that thread to contemporary times. For instance, and then I'll shut up. I read this book and I loved it. And when I was doing research on it, I came across a dissertation by Sarah Waters, who is a modern Gothic romance writer. And her works are phenomenal and amazing. And I know that I can always depend on that to go to for good literature. So I think you can find these authors. You just kind of have to go at it from a different way. If you go in head first, you'll land in all the bullshit. But if you go up from the bottom, it's a weird metaphor, then <laughs> you can find some really excellent works. That's a great way of putting it. These are books for readers, not just for the face value. Yeah. If you want a trashy romance novel, there's hundreds of thousands of them. But that's not what this is. And I, I would hate to put this in that category. Because we're not. We're going to be comparing it. I mean, I'm going to be comparing it to Jane Eyre, to the Bronte sisters, to Radcliffe. I'll compare it to them. Yeah. Because you're right. She obviously knows the genre. So let's respect her for that. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so now that we've previewed a little bit of what we're talking about, do you kind of want to give us more of a full history of what we're going to be talking well put that was really well put it really fits into the skeleton of the subgenre which is the gothic romance which don't get me wrong gothic romance is the bomb <laughs> 1960s to the 1990s was its golden age it had patterns that eventually got concrete and that's why i think it's now called like a subgenre versus maybe it's called its own genre i'm not sure and Jen kind of already mentioned this, but the elements of gothic literature, that's the like, mysterious, terror-evoking, dark. More specifically, it's called gothic because its imaginative impulse was taken from medieval dwellings. Oh my gosh. Here is the medieval age again. Hmm. Cathedrals, castles, mansions, subterranean passages, battlements. What about chateaus? Chateaus would be part of that. Any sort of manor, estate, big house <laughs> big house 
<laughs> Big house, dark, gothic. And isolated. Isolated was a big one, too. They would usually live out in the country because part of the spookiness is being out in the middle of nowhere, having no help when things go wrong. That's why we like the genre. Yep. It's still, I mean, it's still used in horror films now. It's the closed circle trope or whatever it's called. Exactly. As far as the romantic element of it, gothic literature always had romance from the very beginning. But I think the subgenre of gothic romance sort of makes it more prominent. According to this definition, it was also born from the medieval romance genre, and that was like White Knights, Damsel in Distress. Whoever tells me that the medieval ages was the dark ages, I'm going to have to like debate hardcore because medieval times, this is the origin of our art. Because hmm. I've mentioned medieval times like how many times in our podcasts? Yeah. This is an origin era. But I like it. I like that it's coming from that chivalrous age, hmm. even though it was reckless and classist and awful. <laughs> we had really good ideas. <laughs> well, there was a lot of like bullshit going on, right? Wasn't there like plagues and it wasn't like a pleasant life. So I guess it would make sense, at least in my basic understanding of the Middle Ages, that art is a response to that. Yeah. Allow them to survive the awful times. Amen. But you're going to see a lot of those roles, the white knight role and the damsel in distress role, but slightly different and hopefully evolved. And we'll have a lot to talk about this novel and how that plays with those roles, finally. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then according to history, here's the research part. <laughs> 1764 is the very first gothic novel called The Castle of Otranto. You already heard that, huh? Yes. Horace Walpole was the author. Say it with Walpole. us, everybody. Walpole. Walpole. <laughs> and his first name is Horace. <laughs> don't, don't say it that way. <laughs> Poor kid, man. I don't know. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> he was a white man. He was fine. Don't worry about him. <laughs> this is true. This is all taking place in England, of course. What did I say? 1764. So that's that's pretty early on, you know, and he does set it in the chivalrous era during the Crusades, actually, is when it takes place, which was like 1200. Mm. It was a good year. Great year. Yeah. I mean, not for me, it wasn't, but everybody else, I'm sure, enjoyed it. Apparently not. This is still like a time of hierarchies and kings and awful treatment of peasants. Fun. I looked at the plot and I was like, damn, all of this kind of sucks. It's a wild ride, that book. Yes, yes. But the point was, it read like a Shakespeare plot, because there was treason, prophecies, ghosts, scandal, a medieval castle, weird incest. A lot of the stories of fathers and their relationships to their children and family and sons. Yeah. In this story, we do have a hero and what they would call a heroine, in which the hero starts off penniless, and then we find out he's actually the inheritor of the castle. Between everything, it's like he falls in love with one girl, and then she's killed, and then he's made to marry a second girl who he doesn't really love, but needs to in order to, like, keep the castle. Always a good reason. Right. But if you think of that plot, keep that in mind, because that's the very gothic romance atmosphere. Usually a love triangle. We'll talk about love triangles, right? Yeah. That's fine. Gets a lot of tension in there. I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> after this dude, <laughs> mm -hmm. it gets better. Anne Radcliffe. She's called mother of gothic literature because she brought about the perspective of the heroine. We're actually seeing the story through the female's eyes versus the male's eyes. 
And that became sort of a staple for the genre after she had published a few books. Like the most popular ones were Romance of the Forest, 1791, and The Mysteries of Udolfo, 1794. So Anne Radcliffe, I would say, really stapleized what would later be called the distressed heroine. Through the rest of the episode, I'm just going to call it the distressed hero. Because like we said, it could be any gender. At some point, they're in distress. And the point of the novel is to make them unstressed. Because every hero needs to go through a change. Mm. So let's establish that Anne Radcliffe is the one that made the distressed kind of like its own trope. And it's usually the narrator. And it's usually from their perspective that the story is being told. Because they're the one coming into the dwelling and seeing all this mystery unfold. And, and they're trying to solve it. And in doing so, they're going to solve themselves as well. So after Anne Radcliffe, you get the Bronte sisters, 1800s. They actually designed a somewhat of a, not a new trope, but a trope that wasn't quite established yet. And they called it the Byronic hero. Typically, this was the love interest. This was mainly the man who owned the dwelling who the distressed hero fell in love with. Mm. And they were called Byronic heroes because they were the anti-hero, brooding, dark, mm. not a very good person to begin with, really. But I guess the equivalent might be an ice queen. They would have to be melted at some point. Mm. And maybe sometimes they didn't deserve to be melted. Sometimes they just were unredeemable. It became like its thing, right? It wasn't just an easy knight in shining armor. It was this complex person that typically she would have to melt down get to and get to yeah if it was worth it maybe it wasn't i'm just saying sometimes it wasn't <laughs> so we're gonna talk about the byronic hero more in a little bit what it means where it came from and how it's gonna apply to this book that we're gonna talk about because it's kind of interesting cool yeah so we got the distressed hero we got the byronic hero and then as just the last note, I already mentioned that the golden age of the subgenre was 1960s through the 1980s. I only know that because I read a little excerpt from this book called The Gothic Romance Wave. Hmm. It was a critical history about it by Lori Page. And she wrote the following. Pitched at middle class women of all ages, gothics paved the way for contemporary fiction categories such as urban fantasy, paranormal romance, and vampire erotica. Though not as popular today as they once were, gothic paperbacks retain a cult following, and the books themselves have become collector's items. They were also the first popular novels to present strong heroines as agents of liberation and transformation. Hmm. Would you agree with that? I don't know, but I think it's very interesting. What, what do you think? I haven't read many novels from that era. Most of mine were like, Actually, just the Bronte sisters, really. The point is that the women were very much entitled, even though sometimes mass media doesn't picture them like that. They were. Mm. By the end, they were the changed heroes, and they saved themselves as well as their love interest. And that made them more powerful than any other character in the story, whether other people knew it or not. That's cool. I find it very difficult to read any sort of romance storyline because I don't feel connected to it unless it's with to women. So when it comes to gothic literature, I actually prefer a lot of the earlier and the less romantic versions because I feel like there is, like you said, an emphasis on the romance as opposed to the storyline or the action line or whatever. So it's interesting because like, I do want to read it and I think it would be good for me to read it and I'm sure it's good. It just doesn't appeal to me, which is kind of interesting because this book 
that we're going to be talking about is very much this, but just gender swapped with one character. I think in a lot of these situations, if the power dynamics were flipped, I would be super in. But because a lot of this is sort of like the male runner of everything and the female who is, again, in this like place of submission where she doesn't have a whole lot of power, that makes it extra hard for me to get into it because then it's like the lesbian in me has nothing and the feminist in me has nothing. So it, I, it can get tiring for me, but I can understand why people wouldn't necessarily be interested in reading something about a relationship between either two women or two men or two anything that isn't a heterosexual couple because that's not what we have in our history. It's not what we're familiar with. So I try to stay open. I try not to be a hypocrite. But I do think that at some point there is sort of this introduction of this you haven't seen very much. It's not in your collective unconscious as much. So it's going to take some getting used to. Whereas I feel like a lot of these old heterosexual imbalanced romance dynamics have been so a part of our history that I don't feel really guilty being like, no, nah, I'm good. Meaning once you've read one, you're pretty much going to be reading all of them. And this book totally fits in the genre. I mean, it reads like these other ones too. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that there's a pattern for a reason. And in my mind, I don't think it matters who is in those roles. Those roles will always be the hierarchy and the lowerarchy. And I think that's where the conflict lies, not within who's the gen. I mean, don't get me wrong. Jen is absolutely right. And like historically, it's always been the man and the woman and the woman's been in the submissive role. And that's what can change. That's going to be the point of this episode is, hey, we can reverse that play with those because the pattern's going to be there anyway. Yeah. And those dynamics that you just talked about, that's exactly how I feel. Like those dynamics are what, what is interesting about the story and how those different roles play out. And as much as I want to see more representation of gay people, women and men in gay relationships or non-gendered people, I would also really like to see like heterosexual couples in this way, but reversed. You know, I would love to see the man in that role of like a servant who comes, who has to take care of and tutor a child. And it's a woman running the mansion. Like it's just changing who is filling the roles that makes it interesting and more engaging for me. Yeah. Than just the same exact type of person in those types of roles. Exactly. That's the new element. Because look, the genre is not that popular anymore. I wonder why. Maybe because we're not taking chances like that. Or we're not popularizing options like that. And people complain that like reboots are getting boring. And like, why do we keep redoing the same things? It's like, well, <laughs> you built this boat. You didn't want to change it. So now we just have to continue remaking things and you're bored by it. So you got to make a compromise at some point and see that there are these like better, newer ways of doing old things. So before I give the plot summary of the Marquise and the Novice, I do want to give a definition of the subgenre gothic romance. It's skeleton plot, because like I said, this particular book fits into the skeleton. And there's a reason for that, because it has been defined since Radcliffe and Bronte sisters. It seems pretty consistent at this point, which is what we like. And this is it. It's usually a young woman, but like Jen said, it would be great to see like a young man once in this role where the man is the governess, governor, 
Well, how would that work? That wouldn't work. <laughs> the man is the caretaker person who comes in caretaker yeah and the the woman is the one that owns the manor that would be great but typically it's a young woman alone in the world often an orphan who's employed at or comes to an isolated dwelling of dark and mysterious happenings here she must navigate physical ordeals as well as internal conflicts regarding residents of that dwelling and when we say like residents we usually mean the love interest but sometimes it's the kids the distressed heroine is a governess. She tends to be pretty uh, close to the kids, whoever she's taking care of, or the staff. You know, it's not just the love interest. It's everybody in the house. And then, like Jen mentioned before, there's some stories that all you listeners might be familiar with that fit into this category. Beauty and the Beast being one of the first. It was a French folktale. I think the date was 1740. It was first published. But the trope there was the Beast and the Bride. And that very much was the skeleton for the subgenre. There's the, I mean, like Jen said, it's a, usually a dominant male of the house and the underprivileged female coming in. And the circumstances are really radically different and pretty awful and traumatic. There's a lot we can say about that. But the idea is that we're getting closer to equality here. And many authors do touch on the fact that by the end of the book, they are pretty equal. The love interests are pretty equal but Beauty and the Beast would be in that trope. Charlotte Bronte's Janeer is in that skeleton as well, 1847. Turn of the Screw Woo. totally follows that as well. Our 1898 Henry James. Highly recommend. Yeah. And it's a novella. It's pretty short. So good. The narrator is an untrustworthy narrator, which makes it an interesting read. Very much. It's got all those fun, spooky things that you want out of a gothic novel. Exactly. Phantom of the Opera, if anybody's familiar. if I mean, not even with the musical, but there was also the novel, the French original novel, 1909. The Beast and the Bride sort of trope put in a different situation. Setting. Yeah. Very brooding. Very conflicted. Very, yeah. It definitely, I can see how that fits for sure. I mean, yeah, the Phantom is the definition of Byronic hero. Talk about messed up. <laughs> He's pretty mm -hmm. messed up. And then from the golden age, I'll say, the novel Dark Shadows, which launched the TV series, 1966, by William Ross, even though he went under the pen name Marilyn Ross. Mm. Isn't that funny? This is like one of the few genres where a male author will change his name to a female in order to mass market his stuff. Isn't that weird? I'm just saying. It's great. I think that's great. But <laughs> it shouldn't be necessary in any genre. But True. True. So knowing the skeleton plot of the gothic romance, now listen to this summary of the book we're going to talk about and see if maybe it fits into that category. I don't know. Kathleen Thorne leaves the security and pent-up frustration of the nunnery to become a governess for the only child of a willful, beautiful, mysterious Marquise Annalise. She becomes entangled in the web of mysteries surrounding the dark and seductive woman and the chateau she inhabits and finds herself led down a tantalizing and mysterious path that threatens her life, but ultimately leads her to love and family. Now, if you read that and you changed it to the Marquis, and his name was not Annalise, it was Leonard. I don't I was just trying to think of something French sounding. <laughs> You would have like a carbon copy for the most part. And they even in the book, they mention more than once that Kathleen Thorne calls 
the Marquise handsome. So it's very much in that same vein of like, this is obviously that character. This is the beast or the phantom or whatever. Yeah, she totally fits the Byronic hero. But there's also unique things. Like you said, there is differences when you do swap and play with those roles, because then we'd get to see the new things and think about them and be like, oh, yeah, it, like in this situation, it doesn't always have to be the dominant and then the what do I keep forgetting the word? Submissive. <laughs> submissive. <laughs> it doesn't always have to be dominant and submissive. It could always be mm-hmm. from a different perspective, education, family, you know, there's all these other factors you can play with. So we've given you quite the introduction. I think we can kind of finally start talking about the details in it. And for anybody that's been listening to us before knows that I sort of tend to focus on the more feminist aspects of story and looking at it from a modern perspective or what I would consider a modern perspective, whereas you prefer or are more inclined, I should say, to kind of talk about the story aspects and how it connects and the historical aspects and how they sort of interconnect. As you said, we're going to talk about the themes of the distressed hero, the Byronic hero, the setting, which is super important in Gothic literature, as we mentioned, the aspects of mystery, the elements of the romantic relationship, and the ending, which is pretty interesting. It has a really strange twist to it, in my opinion. So do you want to tell us about the distressed hero? Indeed. The main character (laughs) of the genre, I would say. Like I said, it's usually from their perspective. We want the audience to be distressed along with them. (laughs) I'm going to stop doing that because that's stupid. They're not distressed. (laughs) They're just solving a mystery and they happen to be in a somewhat submissive role to begin with, but it doesn't stay. Aren't all heroes? They are. Yeah. Okay. All heroes are distressed. Otherwise, it would be super boring if they weren't. Exactly. So this is no different than any hero. But just to make it clear, there's I'll I'll say the distressed hero or the Byronic hero. Anyway, but the definition of this character, they're attempting to figure out what's right for their heart, what society expects of them. They will usually have a force standing between them and the love interest, but they'll find a way around it, obviously. Hero. Yes, exactly. They have the entire story to do so. So we hope that they do so. (laughs) And then regardless of whether the story is in first person or third person, we experience terror alongside with them and are meant to empathize with them. It may be that they are psychologically and physically distressed, but the ordeal makes them courageous, quick thinking, capable of immense love, and they're holding the most power by the end, the most important aspect. That sort of plays into the, I think, older term for this, which is the ingenue, the sort of like innocent, distressed, naive sometimes, usually woman that comes into this scene and is just like, oh, I've just been born. I don't know what anything is. But she's very like inexperienced and unfamiliar with adulting, I suppose. I mean, we're lucky in this story she is 18 or 19. I feel like in a lot of those older gothic novels, age didn't matter as much. So they're like, oh, she's figuring it out. She's almost a woman. She's like 12 and a half. It's like, okay, hmm, no, that's just a sidebar. (laughs) They are. They're so vulnerable. I mean, it's a vulnerable age to be, to begin with, and then to be thrown into a situation where it's usually an older love interest who's dominant. Right. 
that's not a great psychological situation for that age. Nope. But it's the source of a lot of interesting plot and conflict and mystery, apparently. It makes a great romance if it's done well. In the book, or in the introduction, I should say, it reveals that Thorn is coming from a convent. Her parents are not super wealthy, but they're wealthy enough. I think they're Irish actors. That was an interesting detail. I'm like, really? They're actors? Cool. It was. They were assholes, but that doesn't... (laughs) I was going to say, they left her. They left her at a convent. So that, I mean, that puts her into the role of orphan already. Even though they're still alive and they write to each other, it's not like they're interacting or influencing her in her adolescence, right? It's the nunnery that's doing that. I think there's like a chapter where she kind of recounts her history. She knows from a very early age that she's more of a burden to them than she is like a celebrated child. She kept acting out because they would send her to her grandmother's house, which had a lot of cousins and family that were close, whereas her parents just sort of talk about traveling while they drop her off at an orphanage or whatever. It kind of sucks. It's a lot of abandonment. Her history is rife with, there was a word she used for it in the book that was perfect, but it was rife with people leaving her, whether it was through death or moving or her parents abandoning her. She has a lot of loss in her life and a lot of grief. And that is very typical of the distressed hero. They need to have something missing from their background. That way, when love comes into their life, that's what they think is going to fill it up, right? Right. And we will see it's not the only thing, but it is a main thing. Yeah. What would you describe her state of mind being at the beginning? She comes in pretty conflicted i mean not conflicted but she's more conflicted about whether or not she belongs as a bride to christ is how she kept putting it i mean she does go to this job interview if that's what you want to call it and she is open to it and she's going to like do it if she gets hired but she seems very sort of what's the word i'm looking for aimless oh aimless that's the word thank you she seems very aimless which is another vulnerable state exactly It's nice because this is not Jane Eyre. Her time at the nunnery is not completely awful and horrifying. This is a lot more gentle. And she has friends there. She had a hard time at first, but she gets along with everyone. They're happy to see her. It's all good stuff. And even some of the nuns who are sometimes portrayed in a very negative light are very like, you know, I think you should go try out being this governess because we're not sure that you're ready to be a bride of Christ. And I was like, that's really cool. Like, I feel like a man would never write that. (laughs) Yeah, they would just like slap her to submission and be like, nah, you're coming back. You will be a nun, right? Yeah. The pattern of most of the novels is that the distressed hero, they are usually interested in a new chapter because they are listless. They don't know what they want next. And this happens to be a new thing. Whether it turns out good or bad, they don't know yet. If I'm correct, there's a lot of novels that will mention a best friend or a first love. And I think Thorne is still in this category where she does mention a, a first friend that she maybe was in love with, if I didn't read that incorrectly. I mean, th- the reason I think it's interesting is because she doesn't know her own sexuality at this point. So she does call her and she can still be her best friend. But she also, I think, is very much in love with this other girl who is a couple years older than her and also at the nunnery. And her parents, I think, run out of money. So they call her back home. So she leaves. She doesn't die. Thank goodness. She doesn't get like shipped off somewhere awful. Thank you. There's so many that have to die. What's up with that? I know. It still happens, but not to her. And 
yeah, it feels like a first love sort of thing slash best friend. I mean, which makes sense because women tend to have other female friends, especially in a nunnery. There's not a lot of men there. It does sort of set up this idea that continues throughout the whole book, which is that she wants to have a female friend. And she continuously calls these different relationships that she sees as female friends. And I think it's a really interesting way of putting it because she does not yet know that what she's talking about isn't necessarily a female friendship. Like what she's saying she wants is just a part of the whole. And the whole is not a female friendship. It is, but it's a romance as well. And so I think it's a really interesting thing to like track throughout the story and how she interprets those things. Because like you said, and then after her friend leaves, she makes a friend with somebody else who's like a younger sister to her and she takes care of her. And it's very much a friendship relationship. But that's not the kind of friendship that she continues throughout the rest of the book to want. Interesting. So there's a comparison, um, which I'm sure was a conscious decision on the author's part. This is friendship. This is not. Right. That's what I got from it. So we do see that that younger sister type friend of hers at the nunnery does die because somebody has to die, apparently. But she is sort of compared to Danielle later on, who is another servant. And she sees her purely as a friend. Kathleen continuously throughout the book is like, I want a female friend. And I'm like, you have one. But that's not what she's looking for. Danielle is that representation of that younger sister type. Well, then that said, let's talk about the attraction of the Byronic hero. Dark, mysterious, odd, intriguing, kind of scary, but in a nice way. Like all of those things are kind of the things that hit her first, Kathleen, about the Marquise. And just the fact that she's in power, that would surprise me. Yeah. No matter what the gender was, having somebody in power like that who is maybe closer to your age, who owns a chateau, I'm sure even that's exotic, intriguing, mysterious. And she wears pants. And she wears pants. And she rides a horse like a man. She has lots of comparisons that Kathleen makes very early on. Her and the nuns are in the carriage heading to the Marquise's chateau, and a dark figure shows up on a horse, and the nuns think it's a robber, but Kathleen sees her eyes and is like, oh, it's the Marquise, who I'm totally in love with now. Like, she's wearing pants, and her she says her hands are like man's hands, where they're like, she uses them to work. I mean, there's a lot of sexism there, but I like that that's a focus point. So implying that she's both beautiful but hardworking. Because she is in the role of what, at the time, if this is considered a period piece, this would have been a man's role. Yeah. Men owned their chateaus. It wasn't really inherited by women. But this time it is. So therefore, those details matter. The fact that she does have man's hands is going to be a big deal. I like that. Thorne says, I felt attracted and repelled by her and needed to know more about what I then termed her true nature. Was she good or evil? I decided to do all in my power to find out. That doesn't launch you into the story. I don't know what will. <laughs> and then the rest of the women, right? Do we want to talk about who's actually in the chateau? In the actual chateau itself, there's Denise, the head of the house. She's like an older stately woman who runs everything. There's Danielle, who I believe is a little bit younger than Kathleen. And she's like a servant. The first time I read it, I thought that it was only women. But there are a few men that work there as well. We just never hear about them, which I think is kind of great, to be honest. 
And there does seem to be, which is great for the genre, mystery and unanswered questions even among the staff, Mm -hmm. or at least from the narrator's perspective, Thorne is hearing all of these half-truths. The town thinks that the Marquise is a witch, but they think a lot of women are witches apparently throughout the book. (laughs) When they can't explain something like, oh yeah, she's a witch. (laughs) That's so true of history. <laughs> there was some unsolved things happening in the chateau that Thorne is hearing about and she's like that doesn't sound like proof first of all and these employees seem fine they actually like being there and even they are keeping their own secrets we'll find out later yeah so not only is she trying to solve the Marquises's mystery but the women of the staff are going to have their own secrets When I reread the book, I tracked three things, and the feminist thing that I could track the most was that these are the sorts of incidents you read when a woman is writing versus when a man is writing. And there are quite a few of these scenes where you're like, oh my god, like I would never read that from a male perspective. This is something that women write about women's experiences. So I think that that's one of those things where it's like, yeah, all the women have sort of their own mysteries it all happens under the same roof for the most part and then i did want to talk about how the narrator describes themselves Mm. because self-description especially at this stage in life where they're feeling awkward undecided they usually don't find themselves attractive Mm -hmm. whether in physical beauty or internal attitudes and this is no exception Thorne describes herself as young, clumsy. Mm -hmm. And then her physical description, I did have a quote from the book. She says, I tried to tame my wild curls of red hair, which were always escaping from under my veil. My face was streaked with a fine white dust. My nose was terribly sunburnt. And my eyes seemed altogether too large for my face. (laughs) I realized I looked little more than 16. Mm Mm-hmm. Very vulnerable. All of those she doesn't seem to really like about herself. Yeah. But obviously that's not true because the Marquise, who's gorgeous, is looking at her constantly throughout the book. Yeah. She's got that lesbian gaze going on. Yeah. Or we're made to believe that she really is beautiful and she just won't ever say that about herself. And there are moments she has where she, like, does see herself in a more positive light. And those are really excellent moments because they come at times where she is trying out something new usually. She gets gifted a riding outfit from the Marquise, green velvet pants and a green velvet top with the green velvet hat. And it's like one of the first times she looks at herself and thinks positively of herself. Oh, I can actually look kind of nice. And then the second time is after she sort of has a gay realization. The gay panic is what they usually call it. And she runs away from the Marquise and she goes in front of the mirror and she realizes that she looks very adult because she's very like flushed and like excited and doesn't understand necessarily what's going on. And she's like looking at herself for the first time and seeing like, oh, maybe I'm a little gay. So even the physical description will change. Exactly. I love it. Which surprisingly, the Marquise's physical beauty doesn't change. She pretty much remains beautiful to Thorne the whole time. Yeah. Which is great, meaning that the change is going to come from what she thinks of her character. Exactly. One of my favorite quotes in the book is something along the lines of saying, you know, I realized that it wasn't her that changed. It was me that changed. And I was like, yeah, that's dope. You go. I love it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. In the definition of the distressed hero, we also had the barrier. Whoever's standing between her and the one she loves, there's always some like person or thing keeping the lovers from each other besides one another. 
I mean, most of the time it's like one another that keeps themselves <laughs> away for some reason. Which is the best. Yeah, that's the tension. I love it. But there's also a physical barrier or a physical third person. Right. Sometimes that's the love triangle. Other times it's like the father of the woman. In this case, it's not. That's great. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's not a lot of physical barriers in this story. You can kind of say that the nuns want her to be something. You can kind of say that her parents wanted her to stay in the nunnery. But her parents are awful. And the nuns are nice. So it's cool. So really, there's nothing keeping Thorn from the Marquise. But we might argue that there was a reason for the Marquise to not be honest with Thorn right away. I mean, meaning it was the Marquise who had more of the secrets, more of a reason to put up a barrier than Thorn. Yeah, because everything else, I think, like you said, are not external barriers, except for maybe the fact that Thorn is a woman and the Marquise is a woman, and that would be even less doable than if the Marquise was a man. Other than that, everything is an internal barrier. Yes, I agree with that. But the author doesn't mention anything about that either. There was never a time where Thorn was like, oh no, she's not a man. Which I really liked. In this universe, it didn't matter. That wasn't one of the barriers. Mm. I think maybe the fact that people called the Marquise a witch mm-hmm. or that there was a lot of suspicion around the chateau, maybe that was more of a barrier. Mm-hmm. But I don't think the fact that she was female was one of them. At least it didn't come up. That's very true. It's not even implied that that's a barrier. I guess I would just assume that it is because history. But you're right. It it is kind of nice that it doesn't actually manifest in the story. I think that's a credit to the author. Mm. It takes a very fine brush to go through a period piece and not have sexism, which is very prominent in this era, be a thing. Right. If anything, the inheritance of the chateau was the only, like, she's female. How come she got the inheritance? Right. But that's kind of what I mean. In terms of women's stories, this is an outlier because basically all the men are written out except for two. And one is a child. And I would argue it doesn't fall under that same category of, like, toxic masculinity. And the other one is the villain. So I think it's interesting that she's able to just kind of write them out without it being a big deal. It's just like, yeah, they're not a part of this story. We don't hate them. They're just not here. And she still has all of her archetypes in there. Don't have that toxic masculinity. And it's still a great story. Who knew? (laughs) (laughs) And then the last point I have here is the courage and independence of the distressed hero. And actually, this goes under what we just said, which is that there's no men who have power over Thorn to begin with. Or the Marquise. So the courage and independence is coming from her own character in mind which is a whole new territory for this subgenre because usually it has to do with those physical barriers or the physical ordeals and in this case not so much it's kind of all up here and in here that was your head and your heart (laughs) i forget you can't see (laughs) i mean i like how she really does become the hero at the end and it's not like she wasn't the hero the whole time I mean, she definitely did have power over herself, but it did feel like she was a part of circumstance. Like the circumstances around her defined what she did and how she did things. And it's not until like the very end where she has to sort of be the hero that we get to see her fully take up that mantle and take the control and use her cleverness and ability, even recalling stuff that she learned from the very beginning to outwit that was what i was trying to say outwit the villain and she does it for the marquise's son as much as she does it for the marquise as well as she does it for herself which is pretty amazing 
let's talk about the sexy one. Yes, let's move on to the sexy one. (laughs) (laughs) Came out of my mouth. (laughs) I guess that is typically true. The anti-hero or the Byronic hero, we should say, is typically like physically attractive or the exact opposite super ugly like we've seen in Beauty and the Beast and (laughs) Phantom of the Opera that beast and bride trope right true you gotta hope that you're the really attractive one not the ugly one (laughs) great your questions about what the Byronic hero is and what it means I'm gonna answer that right now this is a very interesting trope it's usually a love interest who is flawed dark yet desirable they're written in such a way to make it impossible to hate them, even after they've done something horrendous. Mm. They are violent-tempered, they have a seductive nature, often cynical, sinister, prideful, moody, revengeful. Fun. Yet, the attraction here, they are often capable of deep, strong affection. Mm. They have a tortured soul crying out for compassion and are viewed as solitary, suffering beings who want love. That's what attracts us to them. Because they're capable of such darkness, they're also going to be capable of very much the opposite, an unattainable love, especially if they become attracted to one person. They're not going to be the one that cheats, in other words. They're going to be the dedicated ones. Right. Often. Often, I should say. So I think for many readers of the genre, that's the appeal of the anti-hero or the Byronic hero, Mm. is that once you have them, well, hell, man, that's it. You're good. And hopefully you both grow after you marry or consummate yeah exactly (laughs) that there's going to be a lot of benefit after you've melted the byronic hero right some of the examples rochester from charlotte bronte's jane Eyre definitely fits into this category because he had kind of a weird past and a crazy first wife (laughs) and he was not attractive he was always rude except to jane when he was really being honest so he came across as a beast Mm. and i would argue that still by the end i was like "Eh, all right girl but (laughs) (laughs) but the fact that jane Eyre came out with the most power entitlement and love and change it was finally okay because now he Mm -hmm. had something to gain from the relationship as well as jane Eyre. Phantom of the Opera, like we've said, Phantom was definitely that description. Heathcliff from Withering Heights, another Bronte novel. Sleepy Hollow? Oh, interesting. You know, the hero of Sleepy Hollow is more of like a a nerd. <laughs> he's mo- he's okay. more of like the white knight. Ah, okay. The nerd white knight. We all know the trope. Yeah. <laughs> that one's more unique I mean, okay. or not used as often. Because it tends to be more mysterious if you're the Byronic hero versus the White Knight. The White Knight's Mm -hmm. very straightforward. They fall in love very easily, and that's not a bad thing. Whereas the Byronic hero, there's a lot of melting to be done, which intrigues the reader and makes you want to read more. And it intrigues the the hero, right? And yeah, the hero wants to melt that shit. (laughs) The hero wants to melt that shit. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, right? Yeah. Would this work in the situation then with Thorn and the Marquise? I think so. What makes this okay in my head is what you said, which is that in the end, the hero comes out with power. And I think that there's a lot of modern stories that take this sort of brooding hero and make it about the manic pixie girl who comes along and like makes his life more interesting and like sees him for who he really is because he's actually really deep inside like those are really annoying if you couldn't tell by my tone because 
the hero in that situation is usually also the Byronic hero. So we're already seeing it from his perspective. But on top of that, the female character or the love interest or the distressed hero, whatever you want to call it, is not in power. They don't gain or lose anything. It's always through the filter of the brooding man. And I think that's what makes this so interesting and acceptable in my head is that in the Byronic hero, you're looking at somebody who is complex, which people like because people are complex, and is not perfect and is the anti-hero and can also be very loving, like you said, and be melted. But they really don't matter to the hero. They do, but they don't, you know? What's most important is that the hero is actually come into her own. Here, here. Now get off my soapbox. <laughs> no, no, don't ever get off that box. That was dead on. That's exactly, and I think mm. that's what this critic of that book I had mentioned was trying to say, that often people will look at the distressed hero as distressed, and they are not. That's the point. They're not. And it's not about the Byronic hero, even though we're giving a lot of attention to the Byronic hero. In the end, it has nothing to do with that. I love it. And I totally forgot to actually mention what the Byronic part meant, where we get the term oh, yeah. Byron. I'm sorry. I was like, oh, yeah, you guys know. <laughs> the term is named after Lord Byron, who was an English poet. Mm. And he wrote romance, but he himself was like an egoist, gloomy, weird. He fell in love with a cousin and then his half-sister. Oh, boy. Yeah, it was weird incest and kind of disturbing elements in his life. Fun. But it made him interesting. For a while, England was totally in love with him because he was so odd. Right. Hence the Byronic appeal. Odd. Mm -hmm. Now that I just said it out loud, this makes me question... <laughs> Maybe this is where some of the patterns of incest and age difference and sexuality comes into some gothic literature. Hmm. Like if you think about the picture of Dorian Gray, mm -hmm. I mean, I know Oscar Wilde was gay himself, but there's a lot of like gay undertones. Mm -hmm. And then with the movie Crimson Peak, which is also considered gothic romance, it had to do with a brother and sister being in love. Was that a thing? Was that ever a thing? I think it is. I think these taboos of society very much go into gothic literature as well things that people won't talk about will be undertones or very blatant in this genre yeah and that's okay because there's a lot of disturbing things yeah and you take it as you take it i don't know you know maybe it's not important <laughs> that it's there you take but it as you there. take it you know <laughs> sometimes the age difference to me is like awful uh, mm -hmm. and jane Eyre, she was like 20 years younger than rochester and i was like that's disgusting like what but maybe it's not i mean maybe it really isn't you get these taboo elements as well yeah man it's interesting i mean in terms of age differences i i tend to prefer a larger age difference so for me that doesn't really matter as much but obviously i do not want to see a sister and brother having an incestuous relationship no thank you i didn't want to see it in picard i don't want to see it anywhere else okay <laughs> But that does seem to be a thing that recurs. One of the things that are trending on TikTok, which we've talked about, is sister and brothers who are in relationships with each other. They may not actually be in a relationship or they may be step-siblings, but they have these channels on TikTok where that's their thing. Interesting. And I'm like, I don't know. At one point in England, it wasn't unheard of, right? I mean, to keep families pure, they often did marry siblings, first cousins. So maybe Byron wasn't completely off i mean at the time he was it was taboo then but 100 years sooner probably not it's a tough road 
because I feel like, especially when we're talking about this story, when we're talking about homosexuality, like so many people demonize that, like they call it sodomy if it's two men, like that's just ridiculous. But I think that's why it fits into the genre and also why it doesn't belong in the same category as some of those other things that are part of the genre. Does that make sense? I agree. Good. (laughs) There's no incest in this book, just FYI. And in my opinion, the Marquise, I mean, she may act broodingly. Broodingly? Broodingly. (laughs) She doesn't fit to the anti-hero definition, but she's just mysterious enough, I think, that maybe you can call it Byronic still. And maybe the attention as part of it. Usually the Byronic hero won't give attention to the distressed hero in the beginning. Like, it'll be like, oh, they don't care. Like, oh, who's that and why? Right. I'm too high up for that. But that's usually just the mask that they wear for a while. Is that true? Yeah. And she kind of has the arrogance that you would imagine from the brooding hero. Like, she's very beastly in Beauty and the Beast. She fits some of those arrogant tendencies but i think that also because she's a woman in this role that it comes off uh, differently than it would if it were a man like again i get very gentleman jack vibes from it that's a tv show if you've never heard of it before um based on a real person and it's just she's very confident in what she does and it can kind of come across as dominant at times because the distressed hero or the hero is more submissive or naive or an ingenue in some of these cases. So I do think that she definitely follows that to a T. And obviously she doesn't turn out to be an egoist in the least. Right. When she cares about Thorn, she cares about Thorn. Yeah. It's very lovely from the get-go. She's got to shake off Barbara. Man, Lady Barbara, she's a problem. Do not like that girl. That's the barrier. Yeah, this love triangle is going to be the main barrier in this particular story, for sure. Yeah. And we'll talk about Barbara. Because love triangles are so intriguing. <laughs> I love it. Do we want to talk about the dark and mysterious past of the Marquise? Yeah. Can I read this quote from the book? Yeah. This is actually, I think this is the maid. Oh, yeah, this is the maid. This is Danielle. Many of the townspeople believe all sorts of terrible things about the Marquise but I have not found her to be anything other than a fair and generous mistress. Many people think she is a witch. So that's just one opinion, but it's all coming from the main mystery, which is the death of the Marquise's husband, correct? From what I recall, he is sick and she wants to go get the doctor. And despite his wishes, she goes out on her horse in a really bad storm and he goes after her, even though he's sick. And gets struck by lightning and dies. And she returns to find him dead. I don't really know how that worked out. But after that point, they started calling her a witch. And the uh, idea was that there was witnesses. The stable boys actually saw the lightning strike. So it wasn't that they're just taking the word of the Marquise. It actually happened. (laughs) Which I think was very clever because you don't want just the statement of the Marquise. You do want witnesses in this case because now it's clear that obviously it wasn't her fault but you can still have that aspect of like oh she must be a witch she must have conjured the lightning bolt (laughs) yeah it's very interesting and mysterious till the end i mean you never find out exactly what that relationship was it's very obvious that the marquise has always been gay or at least if she's bisexual she's very much leaning on the lesbian side. So it's interesting that we never really kind of get a better picture of that. Even her son, Raul, doesn't talk about him. 
it just seemed like there was more to that story that we didn't get. But there were a lot of things that we talked about that could have been expanded. I mean, this book could have been fat novel, but it's it's more of a novella. Can we say what the explanation is? Or at least what we get. Yeah. I remember reading when the Marquise was describing her past, it was that she married in order to appease a family member, a grandmother. I can't oh, even remember yeah, now. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. Okay, yeah. And that was the only reason she married and had a kid. Right. I concur with your opinion is that she's always been gay. And this happened just to be like, okay, family, here you go. It was her dying mother's wish. On her mother's deathbed, She basically her wish was that she would get married and have a child and so she marries this dude has a kid and then she's like well we're squared away now i did it (laughs) and her you know her since we're talking about this anyway her parental role also fits very much with the byronic hero Mm. because typically if they have a kid they're not like super connect i mean not to say that she doesn't love raul but We definitely don't see a lot of scenes where that's the case. It's more like he's there. She loves him fine, but she's not like attached to him the way Thorne maybe becomes. It's very gothic, which is why I think I like that dynamic so much of two women and a child, because you still get to see Raul have that connection with a mother type. It's just it happens to be with Kathleen and not his own mother. And in the end, she does kind of bring them together as a unit. I mean, Kathleen is sort of the one that enforces that connection between the three of them, which is kind of nice. I don't know that if a male character were in that role, that that would be his focus. Status and wealth. That's what I have listed next. We've already talked about the dynamics of wealth and power and how the story begins is usually very radically different and by the end, hopefully somewhat equal. They are both well-educated. They both speak multiple languages. You would call them both ladies. They knew how to conduct themselves and they knew what was proper and unproper, all of that. In that way, they are very much equal. If anything, it's usually just the wealth difference is that the Marquise inherited a lot more money and Thorne is still in that where she can live fine but she doesn't get all the options in the world, right? Until she does. I was going to say, in this particular story, and in many, actually, gothic romances where it ends happily, it tends to be that the distressed hero comes to wealth, usually gets an inheritance herself at the end, which is usually after the fact that her character has already been built. I think the wealth has to do with the status between Uh. the Byronic hero and the distressed hero, is that now they both have material wealth, I see. And I don't know how I feel about that. I would hope in a contemporary Mm. novel or novels written today that money really wouldn't matter. But back then it would, right? So maybe this was a very conscious decision of the author to be like, well, Thorne, she can't just live under the roof of the Marquise without feeling somewhat lesser. Mm. So if she comes Mm. to wealth from a grandmother, that now Mm -hmm. status and wealth and education and all these other things are equal. What do you think about that? That makes a lot of sense. For some reason, I always thought that that was sort of like the boon for the hero. I mean, the relationship and the happy ending plot twist, happy ending, is that once she does all the work and is able to gain love, then that's when the money comes into play. And I always just kind of saw that as the boon because I don't like it when people are the boon. And in a lot of romance novels with a male hero, 
the woman tends to be the boon and the woman is not an object. She's not to be one. So I, I always just kind of interpreted it that way. But that makes a lot of sense. It's a way of equaling the dynamics, equaling the power. And it, it is a boon, too, because she has endured all of that. And she was probably concerned about it at all times to be unwealthy at this time. I mean, you can be empowered internally, and she is. And I mean, most of the stressed heroes are internally empowered by the end. But the boon is that extra like, oh, now you really don't have to be under anybody's thumb. Now your decision is entirely your own. Which is really nice. I mean, in my happy little fantasy world, that means that the women that go through these things and get that boon then in turn get to kind of do what the Marquise does, which is hire people for a higher wage and like treat the people that, that work for them like people, not like servants. And I mean, that's just my little happy world. But that's what I would like, I guess, is that that's a very circular, a cyclical nature. Another refreshing change in this book. So I know we just talked a lot about the relationship already by describing the roles of the distressed and the Byronic hero. I do want to add, however, that another pattern in the skeleton plot seems to be that the Byronic hero is very distant usually not present in most of the beginning, which is good because we want the distressed hero to be asking all of these questions and fantasizing all these things and trying to figure other things out. In the meantime, they tend to be more engaged with their duties, whether that be a governess taking care of the child or housekeeper, whatever, whatever their job is at this dwelling. And in this case, it's very much the same situation where the Marquise, when she does talk to Thorne, those interactions are very unexpected, are sometimes impetuous, romantic, mysterious, meaning the reader looks forward to those moments because they're so rare to begin with. I mean, we're just as curious, right? There was a rose scene where the Marquise tosses her a rose. Yeah, she asks for something dinner. Oh, yeah, they want to talk about Raul's progress in school. But before like, she leaves, she, yeah, she tosses Thorne a rose and that's an unexpected action. Those little moments, I think, really work in this genre. And then it tends to lead to what I call a well-timed rescue. There's usually some ordeal at the beginning where the character of the Byronic hero is revealed. There's like a moment of distress in the household or wherever where the Byronic hero does very much have to act concerned for the distressed hero. Their walls temporarily come down. And I think in this case, we had a pretty good one where... Thorne's life was in jeopardy. She's writing. Jen mentioned that the Marquise gives her like this beautiful writing habit. She goes off writing and she hears a gunshot and she falls off her horse. Well, the horse throws her off. Right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a pretty big physical ordeal. I'm sure she got like concussed a little bit too. But the Marquise goes and finds her, brings her back and, and tries to like revive her. And in that moment where Thorne looks or is in bed and we're concerned about like what the heck just happened? Like who just fired the shot? Were they trying to kill Thorne? What, I mean, I had all these questions are like, whoa, what is happening? And <laughs> yeah. Thorne doesn't seem that interested in it. And since we're from her perspective... I was left like, uh, lady, somebody just tried to kill you. Like, can we come back to that? <laughs> we don't really do that because Thorne is more interested in the fact that Marquise is giving her all this attention, is like actually worried about her, where before she didn't actually think the Marquise really cared about her all that much. It's a very momentary dropping of walls and it feels satisfying for the reader. 
Mm-hmm. It is a little bit, again, the white knight and distressed female archetype, but I think there's a reason why it's in the beginning, right? Because you do want to see how those roles are going to be changed, who saves who by the end. It's a good comparison, I would say. We see that they care about each other. And I, I'm definitely a sucker for that. I mean, I thought it was really romantic and sweet how like she was like, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to find him and I'm going to kill him. I was like, yeah, girl, you go get him. Like, you you go. I'm for it. Yeah. <laughs> like, she was, like, personally very upset that anything like that would happen to Thorne or to anyone, I think, in her life. And I really liked her response to that. And then the other interesting, unique thing I thought was worth mentioning was that even though Thorne is coming in as a governess, that she makes it clear that she cares about Raoul. She cares about teaching, but that's not her goal. I mean, it wasn't her goal coming into the chateau either. And her line is, I longed for the strong binding friendship of a peer, an equal. I did not enjoy the fantasy of spending the rest of my life taking care of other people's children as that dreadful creature, the governess. It was a role I was trying to live to the best of my ability, but I knew deep in my soul that I would never allow myself to become that character. Beautiful. Hell yeah, because usually in other gothic romance novels there is more of an emphasis on the child yeah that they feel like they very much have to be dedicated to that and that's all that matters that's like their mask that they wear like oh no no i'm a governess here i can't be in love with the owner of the house and even that melts in other novels but in this one she never thought that and i thought that was a great addition agreed i mean even like in turning of the screw that's sort of her identity as being a governess a tutor a nanny, whatever you want to call it, to these children. And that's what she tries to fill that mold completely. So it it is very interesting. And I think privileged of her in this book for her to say, like, I would never become that. Like, that's not what I want to do. Ah, yeah. So it's like, good. Women should strive for whatever they want, but also maybe a little outside of what I can accept as being reality. But I also didn't feel like she had another something. Like, there wasn't something she was really passionate about. So maybe that was part of it. You know, like, we knew that she absolutely loved painting. Then we could see that, like, yeah, she loves taking care of... I mean, even the reading thing, it's, like, great, but you need something a little bit more active. Be a writer or something. I don't know. If you don't want to be a governess. But I guess that would take away from the idea... Now I'm just thinking out loud. That, like, she's aimless. Or maybe she could have wanted that all along to be a painter, but she didn't believe that that would be something that she'd actually be able to do. And that made her aimless. So you could make it work. That's all I'm saying. That last one is usually the situation. Okay. Where the distressed hero has a passion or something that they really want to do, but know that they can't in this society with their wealth, with their status. And that, yeah, I I was going to mention that about this book, which is that, well, she didn't really have a thing. <laughs> if the author wanted to take another stab, or like you said, if this book was bigger or longer, that could have been an easy fix. Absolutely. That she really could have had a big passion. And maybe the reading thing would have been it. Yeah. Because she does mention reading a lot. And that's what she's doing more of. Mm, does that tell you something, girl? Yeah. I think if the book were longer, that would have been a huge plot hole. And it would have had, she would have had to have something. I just wish that there were like a hundred of these books because. <laughs> I want to see every different variation of it. Yes. Again, this was another moment where it reminded me so much of Beauty and the Beast. Like, I just kept thinking of Belle and, like, her library. And, (laughs) 
wanting to escape to books. Like, there were so many moments in this book where it was like, Beauty and the Beast, Beauty and the Beast. Yes! Feminism, Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> yes! It really is, though. Mm-hmm. It, there's a reason why Beauty and the Beast was the first for this template. Mm-hmm. And the fact that the Beast actually encourages it. Yeah. That makes for a very attractive Byronic hero when they actually acknowledge the talent of the distressed hero. Mm. It's not like, no, you're going to be what I want you to be. You do this and you do it well, so I want you to keep doing it <laughs> if you want what to. What a concept. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because at that time, the distressed hero is hearing that from nobody. Right. They've lost a, a childhood friend, a first love. Maybe they mentioned it, but they're gone. Yeah. Now they have awful teachers, awful parents, and society wants them to be something very particular. So to have someone say, it's okay, not only it's okay, but keep going, damn, that would get me anyway. I'd be like, oh my god, I love you. Same. (laughs) You're gonna go kill the person that almost tried to kill me, and you encourage me to do what I'm passionate about? Okay, let's get married. (laughs) I'm in. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So we just talked about our undying love for the Byronic hero. So I think we should talk about the person in this little triangle that we do not like. Mm. um, And that is Lady Barbara something. Clydesdale. That's not her last name. (laughs) Not a horse. (laughs) Clydesdale. So do you want to tell us a little bit, a tiny bit about a romantic, what is it called? A romantic rectangle. (laughs) Interesting. I wonder what that would do. That's more like Shakespeare, right? Where there's like four Uh people, but they all love somebody different and therefore it's like chaos. God, that's exhausting. It is exhausting. Love triangle is definitely more pointed and more dramatic, I think. Get it? Because it's a triangle. (laughs) She's fake laughing right now. Totally. (laughs) What was I going to say about that? Oh, because the difference is there's two people who love one person, hence the tension. There was an article, one of these little things that they said, a love triangle like any romance plot should be used to strengthen a relationship. Mm. And that's absolutely true. Even though we're very enticed by drama and solving of who's going to love who in the end, the purpose in a story of a love triangle is to strengthen the relationship between two of those people. And in this case, it absolutely works because otherwise it's just drama for drama's sake. Right. So in this case, we do have a former lover of the Marquise coming into the picture and acting as a barrier between Thorn and the Marquise. So would you say this applies to this situation? How is Barbara in the way? She's very mean. She's very of her status. Like she's supposed to be a very wealthy woman from Paris, I believe. And she fits into that role. Like that's the kind of woman I expect the Byronic hero to be interested in. She's also kind of like the evil stepsisters in Cinderella. She's very dismissive and mean to Thorn and very selfish and demanding of the Marquise. Once she's introduced, it's great because there's a lot of angst and the angst is real. But it's just like enough to like make it interesting to sort of torture Thorn a little bit so that later the payoff is much better. There's a scene where it's been a while since Mar- the Marquise has spoken with Thorn, and she kind of misses her and she knows that she's hanging out with Lady Barbara and the Marquise is like, oh, well, you need to go back to the nunnery to do something. Why don't you come with me and I'll drop you off on my way to Paris and then I'll pick you up later that day and bring you back. She was like, oh, that's great. 
And then she spends like three days daydreaming about how wonderful it's going to be to just spend time alone with her and get to like talk with her and, and just be next to her because she misses her. And then she gets ready and she goes to the front door and Lady Barbara's there. And she's like, oh, okay. So it's not just me and the Marquise. And it's the three of them in this carriage ride that ends up being like the carriage ride from hell. <laughs> and it's so awkward. And like she tries to kind of have conversation with the Marquise, but she's not really in the mood. And she even addresses Lady Barbara and she will not like acknowledge her. And the Marquise says nothing. And on the return trip, Thorne is feeling less bad because she's just spent time with her friends at the nunnery. And she's kind of excited and she's like talking to her and the Marquise is much more interested and they're having like a full conversation. And Lady Barbara is pouting and being annoying and obviously like unhappy that the Marquise is spending even a little bit of her attention on Thorne. And Thorne, in comparison to Lady Barbara, is much lower status. She's a working woman. She's not wealthy she's not she doesn't live in paris you know like she has so much less power and so it's really sort of unfortunate to see somebody like lady barbara come in and be so terrible to her for no reason other than her jealousy which makes her somewhat flat don't get me wrong i don't think the third of a love triangle has to be very complex it just has to be a barrier but in that way lady barbara is very flat she doesn't exhibit anything other than possession and entitlement. Obviously, both Thorne and the Marquise know this about Lady Barbara because they both acknowledge it. And then, like you said, we get to compare and contrast status. In Marquise's eyes, it's okay for somebody to be lower status because she can still love whoever, which is a good character trait of the Marquise. If you look at this book, there's so many... Um, origin stories and there's a lot of traveling going on we talk about france we talk about ireland we talk about hungary i think the marquise is from hungary isn't she mm -hmm. even though she has this kind of accent or she speaks french and we're teaching english like all like exoticness is happening <laughs> between all of these women it's very european it is very european mm -hmm. yes yes so no wonder <laughs> there's so much attraction between these three because it is very appealing to have women of wealth and status and education it's very fascinating to me. I'd be very intrigued by all of it. Yeah. Lady Barbara is absolutely a huge part of what makes Thorne realize her own sexuality. She's a big part of that and her own feelings towards the Marquise. Uh -huh. And there's one particular scene that kind of like haunts her for the second half of the book. And that's such an important part because much later in the book, she realizes that she's jealous of Lady Barbara and that she has feelings for the Marquise. Whereas before, she just thought it was strange and odd, and it being the ingenue, she runs away when she sees them kissing. So another element to the Gothic literature is a masquerade or some sort of ball. Whatever it is, it allows a theatric recasting of some characters. Like you get to be somebody else, and often you're trying to reflect the people that you love or hate, and therefore the drama is intensified because of it and masquerades are just awesome to begin with parties any sort of gathering where tension is among like the characters in it it's just like oh yes that's a great i mean phantom of the opera that scene is epic for that reason where the phantom's coming down the stairs during this masquerade i'm like damn this is where the ordeal is most prominent because especially in a love triangle there's some truths that have to come out so in this situation there is a masquerade that the marquise puts on for her friends for her birthday. For her birthday. It is her birthday, mm -hmm. isn't it? For the Marquise's birthday. So she does invite Barbara. She does invite Thorne. 
she like personally says, I want you to come to this party. Thorn dresses as a gypsy or fortune teller, I should say. Very racist. I actually think that was a reflection of the aunt. Her name is Aunt Morgan or something like that. So if we're talking about switching of roles, I felt Thorn is trying to, she's trying to emanate her friend Morgan, who lives in the cottage in the woods, who's called a witch, but she's like a beautiful person. So she wants that fortune teller energy coming into the ball. That was my interpretation. Totally. Yeah. And on the other hand, the Marquise was dressed as a nun. Mm-hmm. See what I mean about reflecting characters yeah. that they either respect, love, hate, any of those things? The Masquerade Ball is the place to do that. Let's see what character you want to emanate. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting. You got the fortune teller and you got a nun. And what happens is not during the ball, but after the ball, Thorn goes into the Marquise's study for a book. And she meets up the Marquise in there which was very odd because she hadn't seen her at the ball. And they have this moment of wanting to dance. I don't remember exactly how it happens, but... Oh, well, the Marquise asks Thorin to dance, doesn't she? She's been waiting for her. Oh, yeah, she says, I've been waiting for you. Like, what took you so long? It was like this very, again, moment of walls down and truthful and lovely, and they dance in the study. And who should interrupt it but... Uh, Pinocchio. Uh, Scooby-Doo. Uh... And then Scooby-Doo bursts in and says, row, 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 what you doing? Oh, but it's such a great moment. They're dancing and they're looking to each other's eyes. And then Lady Barbara has to burst in and break it all up. And I think Thorne actually like scatters. Like she, she runs. She literally runs. She does a lot of running in this. It fits her role. That was like one of the parts where she first sort of notices her own thought process where she's like, oh, I don't know what would have happened. I know that I was looking into her eyes and I wanted to be closer to her, but I'll never know what happened because Lady Barbara barged in. So it was like another part where you see that like she's figuring out what she's feeling because she still hasn't figured it out yet. In terms of setting, like a lot of things happen in the library. It becomes a a central place. It isn't in the beginning, but then it like kind of picks up steam as the book continues and it becomes a very important place. Let's talk about setting. What else about the library? Um, (laughs) It's the place where Thorn feels the most comfortable. And while the Marquise is gone for months at a time, that's where she goes. And she, I think she feels closer to the Marquise being there, and she has access to all the books there. And when the Marquise does come back with Lady Barbara after traveling for months, she is a little bit unsure because that's the place she wants to be. But it's also her office. And she didn't really ask permission to borrow books. Um, I know, that was hilarious. <laughs> it, was, it was excellent. She, like, can't take it anymore. She has to read. Like, she cannot take it. She knocks on the door and she comes in and she's like, well, hi, (laughs) boss lady. So sorry. I've been borrowing books. I know you're busy. Can I just switch out this book? You know? And she's like, yeah, help yourself. And it's kind of a nice little exchange. And then, you know, we have the masquerade. The Marquise literally waits until Thorne sees her and then she disappears. And then she, like runs you know she hides basically in the library and is waiting for her so they have their first oh this is more than what thorn maybe expected or she didn't realize that that's how she was feeling and we return there again i think there's one other time we return there before the end i just can't remember what 
scene that is. That's where the chess game. The chess game. Which is actually before. That's earlier in the book. Right. But I, I also think that was an intimate scene. That's the one where she runs back to her room and looks in the mirror and is like, oh, I look different. Interesting. So after every scene in the library, in the study, it seems to be that these characters get more insight into themselves. You're right. Yeah. By the end, we have a great scene in there, again, with the nuns who are like, hey, we're here to pick you up. And she's like, I'm not going anywhere. It ends there. It ends like with them in front of the fire in the safest place she feels, right? Which is in that room. We have two other locations we should probably talk about. Besides the library, there is the forest. Mm -hmm. And I did list the witch's cottage as its own little thing. But the cottage of the Aunt Morgan is also in the forest. I did write down right away that forests, historically, mythologically, the forest is the mystery, the shroud, the magic. Anything unknown, maybe feared, is in the forest, and there's reasons for that. There's obstacles. I mean, overall, the forest acts as a shroud, either psychologically or physically. Or both. Oh, yeah. Actually, a good story would have them both, and this is a good story. So what happens in the forest? Well, the first time we get introduced to it, Raoul, the son, shows Thorn this pathway. And he says, my Aunt Morgan lives here. And she's like, what? Crazy kid? What are you talking about? <laughs> first off, Aunt Morgan is a real person. Thorn hasn't seen her yet at the beginning yet. Mm -hmm. But Raoul says she's been here forever. She's a fortune teller, but she lives in the woods. Raoul leads her through the forest, and eventually they come upon this cottage. And they go in, and it's dark, and... There's a cat that comes out. There's herbs everywhere. There's a garden. It's very witchy. Right. And Raoul does say that. He says that other people will call her a witch. Yeah. But he's not afraid. I mean, he, if anything, he's like, this is typical. <laughs> Run-of-the-mill witch. Duh. Yeah, we're in the forest. What's the big deal? <laughs> so to him, it's very regular. But mm -hmm. to Thorn at this point, she had an experience, I think, in the forest previously. So she's still traumatized by that. But eventually... She also gets into it. She's like, I'm understanding the forest now. There's things that happen in the forest later on that kind of shake her up a little bit. Mm -hmm. Should we talk about the lake in the forest? The pond. The pond in the forest? <laughs> so <laughs> she does meet Morgan and it's kind of like a quick meeting and then they leave. And later that same day, Thorne wants to go back. She has questions, I think. And so she decides to go back into the woods and find her, which she cannot do. She gets completely lost. And she comes upon a pond because she hears voices. And she hides because, you know, as people do. And she, like, tries to see what's going on. And it's Danielle, the servant, and another one of the servants. And they're, like, playing in the water. And they're, like, flirting, I guess, and, like, playing around. It doesn't really say, but it, there's, like, an implication that they're being more like sexual with each other than they are just like playing around. And it's at that point where our lovely little naive governess books it. <laughs> she just, right, she takes right. off running. She doesn't know what that means. She, it freaks her out apparently. And that's the first time she interacts with the pond. And then the second time it's the same setup where all of these secrets that these women are holding are revealed to Thorn at the pond within the cloak of the forest. Mm -hmm. So the second time, we actually see the Marquise and Lady Barbara, but this time they're very blatant. They actually kiss at the pond. And, and, and Thorn, I'm sure, is just crushed to see that 
but it's a thematic location where, yeah, the truth is coming out, whether good or bad. And it seems to be that they need the cloak of the force, despite the fact, this is weird for me, despite the fact that these are all wonderful women living in a chateau that's pretty isolated. Like you said, there's some like stable boys and other male employees. But for the most part, it seems like they could all be pretty forward with each other, but they're not. They don't use the chateau for that. They use the forest for that. Mm-hmm. And that to me is interesting and it's in keeping with the genre. But in reality, I'm thinking like, I'm sure you could be just as honest in the chateau with these other women who act similarly, right? I agree. And I think for the most part, it is kind of open in the chateau, but only behind closed doors. And it seems like as soon as they go to the forest, there's a freedom to it. Because I mean, we still know that Danielle and that other chick are messing around. It's It only makes sense that they would also be messing around in the chateau. But there's something about it coming to light, like literally being out in the open, even if it's shrouded, Mm. that sort of changes the way that we interact with it, or at least the way that Thorne interacts with it. I think the the interesting thing about the forest is that it brings everything to light. Everything is sort of out in the open more than it is at the chateau. Which is totally a paradox, right? Because you think the shrouded forest, but that's where you can be open. Exactly. Oh, I even had a quote. Sorry. Yeah. I had actually taken a quote from the book about the setting of the forest. Ooh, nice. And I think this is this is Thorn talking. She says, The trees were so thick that no air stirred, and the little forest noises, the calls of birds and scurrying of little animals, reverberated in a way that was disconcerting. There was something in those woods that was, as Raoul said, magical, something that made unexpected events common. Hmm. And last point about the setting, the chateau in general, we already talked about the isolation factor. It is out in the middle of kind of nowhere, but the chateau itself is described as very beautiful, as lush, as colorful. And actually the quote that I took from the book, the beauty of the scene was blinding, built of rose-colored stone. The home of the Marquise was surrounded by the lush green of woods and meadows and the speckling of countless shimmering flowers. I was to learn later that all of the land, as far as I could see, belonged to the Marquise. It's not even like creepy or old or falling apart. It's none of the typical gothic castle-like stuff. Right. But it is still isolated. Right. It's like isolated enough. Like, Turn of the Screw was isolated. That was like shining as isolated. Like, nobody was around. But this is kind of in that in-between place where it can feel very much like a bubble, but it really isn't, like you said, that far from civilization. So it does kind of lend... I think that's the perfect distance to live from everything. I, I would like to be close enough to people if I need to be, you know, but not next door to them just far enough for drama but not too far for you know dead bodies laying everywhere afterwards (laughs) (laughs) that's a that's a good measuring tool for (laughs) you do we want to talk about the mysteries and the supernatural elements these are the fun elements all of these unexplained phenomenon. Sometimes it could be ghostly, horrific, but in this case, it's more mysterious, I would say, right? Yeah, a lot of gothic literature, there is actually supernatural elements. There are actually ghosts or spirits or creatures or monsters or whatever. And this is all very much in the in the real world. It's just, it's set up to be kind of supernatural, but it's just mysteries that are very much explainable, which I kind of like. I was like, yeah, I didn't need that element for this. So I think the point of the husband's death is to 
shroud the Marquesis's past. Right. And, you know, reasons for calling her a witch. All of these unexplained details that Thorne is like, well, could it be that she's evil? And very quickly we see that's not the case. I mean, just her character. You don't see evil. You just see mysterious. So I think that notion in Thorne's head goes away very quickly. And when she does explain her inheritance and why she had a child with him, all of these things, it's, you, like you said, it's it's very reality-based. But she wears pants, so she must be a witch. <gasps> and she rides a horse. The proper way. <laughs> where you don't fall off. <laughs> How dare she? I know. So, I mean, it, it's intriguing for a while. Once we actually know the situation, it, it becomes like less less prominent, I would say. The more prominent stuff, I would say, comes with trying to discover what's happening with the staff and the other ladies of the chateau. Right. Would you agree? Yeah, because there's a couple other things happening around her that she's like, what was that? Or like, why is this that way? Things like that. We mentioned Danielle and the other young house person. Mm-hmm. The ones we didn't mention, however, was Morgan. Aunt Morgan, what she's doing in the forest and who she is visited by in the forest. And who she visits in the chateau, which I really I really appreciated that, that element of the story. Do you want to kind of give us the lowdown on it? The reason why Morgan is there is because she had fallen in love with the manager of the home of Mademoiselle Dupont. Dupont is also older, around the same age as Morgan. And Dupont is actually going through the forest while Thorne is visiting, or she's just leaving or whatever. And she sees her going through the forest towards the cottage, and she's like, what the hell? What's going on? <laughs> so again, there's like another shrouded couple going on in the forest. And these they're much older. They knew each other for a long time, but they like their current situation, which is that they're close, but they're not technically like living together or married even for that matter, right? Yeah, I really liked her explanation. Morgan was like, we're in our 50s, which is very young now, but we're in our 50s. We're stuck in our ways. This works for us. And I was like, yeah, man, I like that. It's unconventional. I feel like that's stories by women. Like it's a different perspective that you wouldn't normally see. That's not something I would imagine a man would write about very often. And she's like, you know, I need to be in the woods and she prefers to be in the chateau. So we visit each other because there's another scene where Kathleen is leaving a room very late at night and she sees a very thin man in the hallway and she's like, what the hell? Who's this guy? And the person turns around and it's Morgan and she's not wearing a turban anymore and she finds out why. And that's because her hair is cut like short like Raoul's, which is not socially acceptable. And she's like, "Okay, so why is Morgan (laughs) sneaking around at night in the chateau? in a different look than I'm used to. And, you know, it's like, well, because she's having a relationship with Denise, who is the the head DuPont, Denise DuPont. And you find out that they kind of visit each other whenever they decide they want to, which is kind of cool. I'm like, yeah, go for it. And there is another mystery tied to Morgan, but it's not one that we get an answer to. And I thought it was very interesting because it's in the same conversation that she has with Kathleen about her situation with Denise. Like, she's asking her these, like, different questions, and Morgan is being very open, and Kathleen decides to ask a question that she thinks might be a little over the line, but she already asked it, which is about the scar that she has on her face. And Morgan says, we're not going to talk about that. We'll never talk about that. And I thought that was really interesting. Like, I don't know what that meant. It's never explained, as far as I can know. 
but I feel like there's a story there. And so I, I kind of like that some of these mysteries do remain mysteries, even though I really want to know what that meant. And the fact that her name is Morgan, another allusion to Thorian tales here. Right. Morgan Le Fay. I wonder if that was a connection there because it does make her Mormon. But then you meet her and it's not. I mean, she acts a little funky, but that's because she lives by herself, you know. And she's growing her herbs and she's using them as medicine. And she even teaches Thorn about some of the herbs. She says like, oh, this one might put you to sleep. This one will do this. This one will do that. Mm-hmm. So Thorn is, it ends up being like her source of therapy. When she, when she goes to visit Morgan, it's, it feels very intimate as in like mother-daughter sort of thing. Oh, and then it's so sweet because... Morgan is acting as a kind of a surrogate mother also to the Marquise because we find out Morgan is the one that set to break it off with Barbara before she pursued Thorne. Yeah. And that is a very protective thing to do. You're like, well, and obviously Morgan likes Thorne. She's like, well, you know, if if you're going to pursue her, you need to treat her with respect. You need to get rid of Barbara. Do that first. (laughs) And then you can do your thing. right? Right. So I'm glad that she was looking out for everybody. Yes. Even though she's somewhat isolated from the chateau. Which is a testament. I think that's awesome. Like, she doesn't even <laughs> live in the chateau, and yet she's the one that's sort of making sure everybody's, like, on the right track for the most part. Ooh. Should we talk then about, like, those attempted murders? What's happening with the villain and why? Yes. Okay, so we said that she was almost murdered, right? The horse fell, she got hurt, and the Marquise told her, I have a bounty out for him, basically. Like, I'm giving a reward to whoever can tell me information about it. And then that's kind of all we get on it for a while. His Okay, to fill in the blanks, his name is Yves Martin. So her husband's uncle has an illegitimate son who claims to be the true inheritor of the estate, of the Chateau estate. So what he tries to do is get rid of the Marquise. So the gunfire at Thorn, it was him thinking that that was the Marquise and trying to kill her. And he actually thinks he succeeds. He sees her fall off the horse and he's like, got her. But we find out he discovers it wasn't her. She's still alive. He confronts her instead at a bank at this office somewhere in town. What the Marquise does is she has to play dead because he brings a gun. He brings a revolver. He threatens to shoot her if he... If she doesn't pass over the estate to him then and there. So the Marquise comes up with like very cleverly and very quickly. Like I'm going to fake dead. Like he shoots off the gun. She pretends she's dead. Her body is brought over, is brought to the chateau. And it's there that Thorin is like, holy crap, she's dead. The staff is like surrounding her and saying that, you know, she's been shot. And like there's this lifeless body in the bed. And Thorin is just like beside herself. She just throws herself on her. Everybody leaves the room to give them their privacy. And then do you want to say what happens next? Well, she actually kisses her too. Like she's very sad because she like oh. thinks that she'll never see her eyes again, which is a big thing in the book, which is a big thing in a lot of lesbian books. It's all about the eyes and like the lesbian gaze. And she kisses her. And when she opens her eyes again, the Marquise is, like, looking at her, which I think is must be hilarious at some point. That's got to be funny. Where the Marquise is just like, hello. <laughs> and she's like, what the hell? Like, what, what, what's going on? Like, are you okay? And the Marquise is like, I'm sorry that I had to trick you. And she's like, what do you mean you had to trick me? Like, what the hell? And she explains the story about, like, what happened with Eves and she had to pretend she was dead. And I think it was funny, like, at the end of the scene, 
at the end of the scene, Kathleen is like, well, why did you let me go on and on? And she's like, I couldn't interrupt you. You were being super loud. Like, nobody could hear me over that. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's right. Wow. Thorne was like screaming. Yeah. <laughs> and she laughs. So I'm like, okay, girl, you got, you, you're very, that's great. My ego would not let me laugh in that situation. That's the turnover scene, right? That's when they finally reveal that they actually care for each other and they're ready to like move forward. Yeah. Isn't it? I think so. So as far as the romance plot, I should say, that's the climax. That's the dropping of walls. Here's the situation. It's resolved. They arrested Yves. As we see, we're going to find out that's not quite enough to stop him. But for now, he's out of the way. Barbara's out of the way. They're free to like explore their relationship and they do right they they start being together they and yeah all i mean all of that seems like falling action the big climax is over mm-hmm. which is as we see it's not that was actually kind of like an or another ordeal right because that wouldn't work because the hero didn't do anything right the distressed hero didn't change yet or at least didn't change in the bigger climactic way right it was more of the marquises's deal yes and even though we now confront their actual feelings, we're still not there quite in their inner character. We need to have the actual climax, exactly. which is what we get with the third appearance of Yves, mm-hmm. who has escaped jail. And at this point in the chateau, both the Marquise and Thorne are openly together. The Marquise finds out he's escaped, yes. So everybody becomes excited and active. The Marquise and Morgan both go off riding on their horses to try to protect the chateau and maybe to find him first, right? They want to find Yves and stop him. Yeah, I think they go into town to get the, basically, a police officer. Nobody else is there because it's a market day in town. She tells her, she tells Kathleen to stay at the chateau and Kathleen is like you don't have to tell me what to do like I don't have to and she's like well can you stay for Raul and she's like okay fine (laughs) so like the plan is (laughs) for your kid sure oh yeah so the plan is that like her and Raul will stay there safe not to let anybody in and that she and Morgan will go and they'll come back that's the plan of course it does not go according to plan he does show up again with the revolver he goes to Thorne's bedroom, threatens her with the with a gun, saying that I, I need to take both you and Raoul to um to some sort of isolated place because his idea is to keep them hostage. I was like, handicapped? That's not the word. <laughs> so the Marquise can still give him her estate. Right. It's a horrible plan because obviously it's not going to work. Like, the authorities would never let that happen. But he's a moron and probably drunk. Oh, he was drunk. They did say he was drunk, right? And unhinged, they kind of make it out to seem like he's not actually stable. So it's not somebody you can reason with. Right. But of course he has the gun. So both Thorne and Raoul follow him all the way to Morgan's cottage. I don't know if he knew. Well, he had. Yeah, I think he does know. But he has her write a note to the Marquise to tell her to meet her there. And it is a really interesting scene because it's one of the first times that Kathleen has a choice now where she can try to leave her a message that she should be careful, that she shouldn't just show up. And so it's one of the first times we get to see her take action in this like series of actions that she's about to take. And so then, yeah, he he tells them to go to the cottage and they the three of them go to the cottage together. We're, we're getting a lot of internal dialogue, which is that she's super concerned for the Marquise and trying to figure out what she can do to save her. Yeah. But at the same time, like you said, she's worried about Raul and they're both being very brave for each other. But at some point, Thorne's character, which is has been building up until this point of wit and courage, it all masks to this point because 
Yves says that he's thirsty. He wants tea. So he unties her. She's again in Morgan's cottage where she's now familiar with the herbs and the teas that she uses. She takes the tea that she knows puts people to sleep. Because it smells good. It, it's sweet. And that was like one of the big points that I think is very witchy. That like the sweet smelling herb is the dangerous herb. Yeah. So she's able to fool him. He's like, well, what is that? And she's like, here, smell it. He's like, oh, it smells good. Okay. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. And it, again, it's that moment of complete resolve for the distressed hero. She is no longer distressed because her plan works. Nobody comes to save her. She saves herself. She saves Raul. He falls asleep. The Marquise and Morgan appear. And when they get there, he's like already on the floor. They're untied themselves. I mean, <laughs> Thorne is taking care of the situation. Uh -huh. Ironic hero has been saved by the distressed hero who is no longer distressed. So that's the big point of this genre is that by the end, the roles have somewhat switched and they're now equal, able to save each other in different ways. It's a very good scene. You get to basically go with her in this thought process. And I really like that about first person. Is that what it's called? That we're seeing everything through her eyes because she really does sort of utilize all the things that she's learned since she's been there to do the thing that she cares about most, which is to save herself, which is probably last, but to save Raul and to save the Marquise. And I love that she is the one that's able to do that in the end. It's a really great scene to see the three of them, Raul, her, and the Marquise together as a family unit. And that they three go together back to the chateau. It's very cathartic. How lame would it have been if she, like, had been stuck there with Raul and the Byronic hero had to come and save it? Like, that'd be so boring. <laughs> Don't understand why that's so popular in fiction. <laughs> it's easy like well and it's outdated because if that happens now that catharsis isn't there the pattern of the romantic gothic literature in all of these female authors was for that reason they didn't want the white knight trope anymore it's it's romantic up to a point but if the female isn't changing at all well then there's no point to keep writing about it so what they did is they flipped it maybe the ordeal means having the byronic hero save her but the climax it can't be that she needs to save herself. So I'm glad that they sort of took over that genre so soon. So I think other than that, I mean, in terms of the ending itself, what I was calling the twist is that this is a story about lesbians and neither of them die. And it's not a tragedy at the end. <gasps> what? <laughs> Blasphemy. <laughs> Even now, we still struggle for stories with happy endings. It's not like we need everything to be happy. We just don't want somebody to like die or to be devastated. And a lot of stories that had this kind of feel, like kind of had the angsty romance that's written decently was pulp. And almost all the pulp that was written has to end with somebody being tragic in some way or the woman being evil or whatever, because that was the only way that it would be published. So it's like pulp plus. <laughs> it's got all that like stuff you like about pulp. It has power dynamics that you wouldn't necessarily see in your like typical romance book. It has a little bit more of an erotic aspect to it than you would find in a romance book, but it doesn't have the stupid, awful ending has a decent ending and one of my favorite parts of the ending is Kathleen talks about at the very end what their plans are so they're gonna like go traveling through Europe they're gonna drop off Raul at school and he's very excited about it because he needs to be around other kids and then they're gonna go back to the chateau 
And she vows in there that she will never let Raoul feel like he's abandoned because that's sort of how she started out, right? That her parents dropped her off and left her. And so one of the things she makes sure to, to highlight is that she's going to, they're going to write letters as much as he wants because she doesn't want him ever to feel that way. And it kind of goes to show that she's like kind of a better mother than the Marquise, but that's okay. She is the bridge of that unit. You know, without her, the Marquise and the son would just continue to separate. I think there could be a lot of, like, animosity from the son to the mother because she was never there for him. But she kind of, like, bridges what could be a very dysfunctional, unfortunate relationship and makes it work. I think that's really beautiful. I like that even more than the romance aspect of it. What I like about it is that she is that connection for them, that they become a unit at the end. I think that's really amazing. But I do like lesbians, so that's also good. <laughs> yeah. So I think that pretty much wraps up our look into the Marquise and the Novice. If it wasn't apparent to anybody, this is one of my favorite books. And I do think part of the charm is finding it by chance. Again, I just want to reiterate, like, go support your local bookstores because it's worth it <laughs> and we need them. If anybody here that's listening has found a book like that just sort of by accident or by circumstance and it has become one of your favorite books, I think we'd like to hear about it. Like, tell us what your book choices are for things that you kind of found out and never would have otherwise maybe. And you can message us on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter or by our email. Everything is at by the pen. So... Our email is bitethepen at gmail.com, and you can rate and review us on iTunes. And our episodes are, of course, available on all podcast apps. We want to thank our very generous pen biters. That's Jesse M., Jeanette M., J.R. Keeler, and Thunderfly. Thank you very much for your support. If you want to become a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash bitethepen. Au revoir. Before everyone leaves, however, I do have a final quote from the book. So no au revoir quite yet. <laughs> and this is straight from the Marquise and the Novice. And this is, of course, Thorne speaking. I felt as though the people who lived at the chateau were actors in a series of magnificent tableaus. And I was a newcomer, an understudy, watching from the wings. I longed for the day when someone would hand me a copy of the script or explain the plot. 